leadership has become incredibly complicated. Workplaces are being disrupted in ways we never could have imagined. So what's the biggest challenge to leadership? I'm Michelle Johnston, management professor, executive coach, and leadership expert. And I believe the biggest challenge for today's leader is connection. Why? Because research shows that connection drives results. That's why I've written the book, The Seismic Shift in Leadership, and why we are putting together this podcast series. Through interviews with some of today's top business leaders, we are going to explore how leaders' ability to connect with themselves, their teams, and their organizations defines their ultimate success or failure. Now, on to today's episode. Today, we're going to be focusing on connection with your team, specifically the importance of listening to lead. And I can think of no better leader to speak on this topic than the legend himself, Boise Bollinger. Boise was the CEO of Bollinger Shipyards, the largest privately owned shipyard in the United States for three decades. And he was a man before his times. While most organizations operated from a command and control perspective, Boise believed that the best way to succeed was to truly listen to the frontline employees. You will hear Boise's stories of spending weeks each year going from shipyard to shipyard to listen to all of his employees to learn what was working and what could be better. I am confident you will enjoy my lively discussion with the legendary Boise Bollinger. Boise, thank you so much for being on our show. Before I start inundating you with questions about your leadership, let me share with the listeners a little bit about you. When I say Boise's a legend, I'm not exaggerating. And he's right here in New Orleans, Louisiana, where I am, and he's been all over the Gulf Coast region. Right now, he runs Bollinger Enterprises because he did sell his company, and he spends a lot of his time traveling the world. What I find fascinating about Boise and why he's on our show today is I truly believe that he was ahead of his time when it comes to what it takes to be a successful leader. And so we'll go, we'll go ahead and begin. Boise, welcome. Thank you so much. Good to be with you, Michelle. Awesome. So let's talk. Can you share with the listeners a a little bit about your tenure at Bollinger Shipyards and, and kind of your story? And then we'll go in and I'll pepper you with questions. Well, my father was a machinist, and uh, at the end of World War II, he decided to open his own machine shop. Uh, he bought a World War II surplus machine shop in New Orleans and moved it to the banks of Via Lafourche and became a machinist uh, in his own company, which made him an entrepreneur. Uh, he was well-trained uh, by, his, by his father, who also worked in the shipyard um, where he was working. Uh, but machine work was the only a part of what he wanted to do. He wanted to do more work on boats because he worked in a shipyard as a machinist. So to get to the underwater gear, he had to build a little set of marine railways to get the boats out of the water. So he'd get to the shaft and the propeller and the rudder and do the work on the bottom of the boat that he was accustomed to in his machine shop. Uh, I came along being born about three years later. Uh, and so literally I grew up. Uh, totally in the business. In 1960, we moved 
to a new home at the shipyard. So I actually lived in the shipyard for for my uh, all my youth until I until uh, I moved out to go to college. Uh, so I, uh, it's all I've ever done. Uh, when I came back from college, and we had some subsidiary businesses in the marine transportation business. Uh, so when I was in college, whenever I had time off, I worked on boats uh, that was part of our fleet. Um, and then uh, uh, came to work in the business and, and, and never quit until December 23rd, 2014, my mother's birthday. She would have been 101 years old when we, uh, when we sold the business to my nephew. So he's still involved in the shipyard. And I trained him. He was a professional football player, came back from the NFL. And uh, I said, I'm not going to pay you what those guys pay you, but I'll teach you a trade. And now he runs the whole thing and he's doing a wonderful job. Oh, that's such a beautiful story. Thank you, Boise. Well, as you well know, my whole book is about connection. And what I've learned, at least right now, and it's not going to go away, is that for leaders to be truly successful and get to the pinnacle of their career, They need to work and focus on connection every single day, connection with themselves, being really comfortable in their own skin so that they can demonstrate authenticity, connection with their team, which only comes from being comfortable in your own skin. And and you are, and, and that's one of the beautiful characteristics about you. You own your story, where you came from, who you are. You've been totally comfortable in your own skin. The leaders that I've seen lose their jobs were trying to be somebody that they weren't or they were hiding parts of themselves. They just weren't comfortable in their own skin. So you've got that part of connection down pat. And then we have the connection with your team. And then we have connection with the organization. So when I had my aha moment and realized that it is all about connection, I then went and interviewed 18 leaders. And thankfully, you were one of them. And then when I did a content analysis of all of the interview data, what emerged is one of the best practices to connect with your team was leadership listening. So I feel like you were ahead of your time because when you were the CEO back then, command and control and the authoritative leadership style, the directive style was very much in vogue and people didn't really question it. So could you tell me how in the world you figured out that you needed to be the leader, the CEO who really spent time listening instead of directing? It was actually accidental. And we actually didn't cover that much of this in the book. But uh, for the first half of our career, it was very uh, authoritative as the industry had been. And as I had grown up in management, that's the way you did it. And I made an acquisition in uh, the mid 80s with a company that was had been lobbied to become unionized. And I bought them nine days before the union vote. So they never voted to go union. But the parent company did and voted to go to union. So I was very sensitive to uh, the fact that these employees, 250 of them in that location, had been lobbied for uh, for almost a year and then didn't get to vote on becoming uh, a union shop. And, and of course, that flared up about five months and six months into our ownership of that company. The unions moved back in and they were trying to take over. I hired uh, law firms to handle the discussion with the employees, which is what was done then. Uh, and then uh, it kind of went away. And then about six months later, it flared up again. Uh, my management team there said, you want us to hire the same law firm? And I said, no, I'm going to handle this myself. So I went in and met with every employee in small groups 
to explain to them, number one, that we had, I hadn't met with them obviously a few times to explain what we were doing with the acquisition, but uh, to talk about issues that were concerning them uh, and, and uh, to explain to them that a union has a wall between us uh, that we can't communicate. And to my amazement, they had a lot of questions about a lot of our company policies that I had never been challenged on before. And what I found out is what was important to them, in many cases, didn't matter to the business. It wasn't detrimental to the business. And we could change policy to accommodate their wishes without having any detrimental effects. And all of a sudden, I was a benevolent dictator because I heard what they said and I listened and I changed. I changed what we did and how we did it. And it was amazing. So I took that example and expanded it across all the shipyards. And of course, in the mid eighties, we had four shipyards and we ended up with 14 that was scattered all along the Gulf Coast. So I took the whole board uh, and we met with every employee we had every year and listened. And, and we spent out of a 45 minute session, 15 minutes explaining to them what was going on in the business. So they would have, have it from the board. They felt comfortable that they were part of management almost to say, we know what's going on in this business and the direction of this business. And then the rest of the time we spent listening, let them ask us any question they wanted to ask us. Sometimes we had to say no, uh, but that's all right because it was coming from the top. They didn't have any buffer between us. And in fact, uh, a few years later, I was having another union issue and I explained to them, I said, you know, if we have a union here, we can't have these meetings anymore. We can't have the one-to-one discussion between me and y'all. Every one of you has the right to talk to me. Uh, and, and I think it went a long way from keeping us non-union, but it really was good for the business because we learned to try to address the needs of our employees where we could. And I think they really respected that. I love how you described that a union would put a wall between you and them and there wouldn't be that open communication. Well, if you don't have the communication, the wall doesn't matter. But once you establish that communication, all of a sudden they realize that they're talking to the chairman of the board and CEO of the company and getting direct answers to any question they have, that's pretty valuable to them. And in fact, when you had, we had 3,000 employees. When you think about the time and commitment the board took to go visit with 3,000 employees, I mean, we some nights we were at midnight at a, uh, for the third shift in Texas City, Texas, which is not much of a place to be, uh, but we were there uh, and, and they appreciated it. And so I think when they think about losing that connectivity, losing that ability to have a direct communication and, and their questions and concerns answered, uh, it makes a huge difference. That was not the intention of why I started it. It was accidental that I realized that this benefit was so great for the business. But I tell you what, we never stopped and never looked back. And they still do it today, by the way. They do? Your nephew still follows that best practice? Of course, Ben, my nephew, was part of our management team and part of our board as we were doing these meetings. So he just continued, as well as my sister. She is still on the board. You know, what's interesting is when you were describing this, it sounds like what prompted the shipyard workers that you bought, acquired, to go after the union is because they wanted a voice. 
But then when you explain to them that there wouldn't be that connection at all, that direct communication, if they had a union. So they wanted something, but yet in turn, by not going unionizing, they got a whole lot more connection with you. To be honest with you, the union issue discussion came later. At the beginning, it was uh, my first meetings with these employees were discussing the fact that this was a business that we were very focused on. And the parent company of the previous owner we bought them from was not focused on this business. So first, I wanted them to show that our heart was aligned with their job and that this was our business. Then we took all of our employee benefits and laid it on top of a big corporation's employee benefits. And there was a lot of changes. I never thought about the changes being uncomfortable. Change is always uncomfortable. But we just said, we know what we're doing, so we this is our policy. That's where the beginning of the conflict started. And that's what's the first things I was able to hear complaints about and realize that nobody made me God. It didn't have to be the way we had done it. In fact, we were wrong because I realized that when we changed it for 250 employees, the changes we made affected another 1,500 employees, all of who appreciated the changes because it meant something. But I hadn't been listening to those complaints before. And when I started listening to the complaints and realizing that we were not always right and that the employee had a hell of a good point to make and we changed company policy, all of a sudden, all of their eyes got bigger and said, wow, these people listen to us. They care. They, they care about what matters. So that bridge eventually was used in the anti-union effort, but it didn't start that way. It did start as a result of trying to be unionized, but the communication was not about not being unionized. It was about my surprise and learning what was important to them and didn't matter to me. It didn't matter to me as a company as far as changing policy. Well, that's what we're hearing about the great resignation, you know, with 4.5 million Americans voluntarily leaving the workforce just in November alone. All the research is showing that employees had a lot of time during the pandemic to think about what was important to them, what they liked, what they disliked. And they really wanted to be seen, to be heard, to be valued, appreciated. They wanted a purpose. They wanted a purpose. And, and it sounds like that's exactly what you realized back then is, whoa, you didn't realize the benefits meant so much to them. And, and it wasn't a whole lot of skin off of your back in order to accommodate. They want to be heard. Employees want to be heard. And you realized that. And what's interesting, Boise, is early on in my career, I, I've always been interested in, in listening um, from a leadership perspective, and I've always published articles on listening. And my colleague and I, Kendra Reed, we came up with a scale called the Team Listening Environment Scale. And it was right around Hurricane Katrina. And we were going to collect data. Our research question was, if an organization has a strong team listening environment, which means that you have a leader who really actively listens and then says, I've heard you, I can do this, I can't do that, and then makes those changes and comes back like what you're saying. Our research question was, we were hoping, is will those companies make more money? So can you correlate the soft skills 
of of listening with the hard skills of financial performance. And we were, you know, the university after Katrina was shut down and we were all over the country, but Dr. Reed and I were able to collect data at multiple manufacturing facilities and we were able to prove our case that those soft skills of listening absolutely correlated with financial performance. You know, uh, somebody suggested one time I was in a factory in Europe and there was some music playing pretty loud. And I was uh, impressed. And I said, what's the deal with the music? And they said, we learned that if you play pretty fast music, employees work faster. And I said, you got to be kidding me. He says, no, we've actually tested it between two different buildings to do the same thing with one with music and one without, and the output is bigger. So I started doing that in our fabrication buildings, put music on. But it's just an idea that you don't even think about. But subconsciously, the speed of the music gets people to move quicker. Uh, I always like to, in fact, I like, I'd like to go on the, on the shop floor and ask, get 10 guys together around me and said, okay, y'all do this job every day. How can we do it better? What's your idea? I'm, you know, I didn't set up the way to do this. You set up the way to do this. And can we improve it? Many, many times we got process improvements out of the employees coming from the, from the deck plates, we call it. Uh, so listening is doesn't only matter, it does make a lot of money. A happy workforce is extremely important. And if you can address some of the problems that concern people and aggravate people, ensure that you're listening, it makes them a lot happier and they're much more productive. So it's definitely correlated between a happy workforce and sometimes a musically inspired workforce with the bottom line. I love that. You know, that reminds me of Todd Graves with Raising Cane's. You know, when he opened up the first Raising Canes, he looked around and this, the people he wanted to hire were the people who were applying for jobs in other fast food uh, companies like Burger King, McDonald's. But he found that they were unhappy there and he wanted to make sure to have a happy environment. And he had fun music. That's exactly what he did. He put on the fun music. OK, so but going back to you, um, I just want you to say that again for our listeners is that you do believe that focusing on listening paid off financially. Oh, no question. No question. In fact, I'll give you two examples. When we came into that first 250 employee where I was listening, we had a policy of two weeks vacation on your anniversary date after one year. So if you came to work on February the 12th, on February the 12th, the following year, you get a two week check. We thought that was great. We were prepaying for the vacation. And the employees told me, my wife spends the money. So if I want to take a vacation, we have no money. Can you give me vacation pay when I take my vacation? Duh. Of course I can do that. And then they, then it was one week at a time. And they said, can we take a day's vacation if we have to miss work? It keeps our paycheck whole for the week. Duh. Yeah, we can do that as long as you schedule it. And so little things like that had no effect on the bottom line. In fact, it improved the bottom line because we didn't prepay vacations. We paid them when they were actually taken. And that way the employee was happy because he had his money when he wanted to go on vacation or his day pay when he wanted to take a day off. And so those little things of listening to the employee and what's important didn't cost a penny. And yet it made a happy workforce because we listened and we addressed their issues. And it was not one that was consequential in the cost. In fact, it was beneficial in the cost. This 
This podcast directly parallels my new book titled The Seismic Shift in Leadership, How to Thrive in a New Era of Connection. Through a series of revealing interviews with 18 leaders from around the globe, I will show you how connecting with yourself, your teams, and your organizations can get you to the next level. The Seismic Shift in Leadership is available right now on Amazon or wherever books are sold. For more information about the book, you can visit my website at www.michellekjohnston.com. A lot of the leaders that I coach now, the executives I coach, they're trying to figure out how do we retain our employees? How do we create an environment where they're satisfied and they want to stay because competition is fierce right now for labor. And, and, and now with this hybrid, you know, remote work and a little bit of staying at home, as a matter of fact, Warner Thomas, um, your friend, the CEO of Auctioner Health has decided based on surveys from employees that, okay, we're not going to bring everybody back and make them work five days a week. We needed to listen to, to them and they want some flexibility. That's what a lot of people learned. A lot of people learned during the pandemic that they didn't want to be home all the time, but they liked being home some of the time. And so that's why we're in this, this hybrid um, kind of craziness, which also goes back to listening and connection, that for leaders to be successful right now, they have to go above and beyond to connect because they're not around their their people every single day. So I'm calling it a treat me like a human revolution. We can't go back to what you experienced in the shipyard industry kind of growing up and what I was raised with. My father worked his entire career at General Motors and every single night, no matter how long it took him to commute home from Detroit or New York, wherever we worked, we moved around all the time for his career. We waited for him to walk in the door to have a family dinner. And Boise, the discussions every night at the family dinner were all about his authoritative jerky bosses, you know, and somehow how to survive. And so the seismic shift is that that's just not going to work anymore. And the leaders who believe that their power is what they should use It's got to be treat people want to be treated like a human. And I think listening to employees right now is one of the key attributes to that. Well, you know, your father and my workforce basically have to show up for work to produce a car or produce a ship. You can't do that remotely. And and it's amazing things you learn over time by listening. When we would get behind, we would uh, check and see who wanted to earn overtime which is very attractive to your paycheck. And we realized that you could get, you know, a, a normal week was 45 hours, 40 hours straight time, five hours overtime. That was the normal week. And we realized you could get that up to about 60 hours, which was very economically benefit beneficial to the employee. But you can only do that for about two months because then they realize, well, it's nice to have the paycheck, but we don't have any time off. We don't have any time to enjoy our paycheck. So we had a policy that after 60 days of extreme overtime, you had to go back to 45 hours. So you'd have your weekends off. You wouldn't be working every day. You, you weren't as frustrated mentally with not being with your family and all those things. We learned that by the interaction. You know, we thought the more money they bring home, the happier they're going to be. And that is true for a little while. It's not true for a long time. And then that productivity goes down 
when you go beyond two months of making them, well, not making them, but asking them if they want to make extra money. So again, hearing that feedback, let us change the policy, which we thought, let's go all year long. If you want to make all that extra money, it's a lot of money in your pocket, a lot more money than your base pay. But uh, no, it's not what makes them happy. They need some time off. He said, I can buy a fishing boat, but if I can't go fishing, it doesn't pay me to have the extra money to buy the fishing boat. So it was it was learning that you have a capacity for so much. And then after that, you need some time off and you need to enjoy. We forced people. Our vacation policy became much more liberal as time went on. That was 30 years ago. That's a story I was telling you almost 40 years ago. But we have more vacation time now. But some people say, I don't want to take my vacation. Just give me my money. And we'll do that. But you have to take off one week. You have to take off a week. We don't let you not take off a week because we think that's important for somebody to schedule some entertainment time for themselves and their family. Uh, you can get paid for three weeks if it's a if you have four weeks vacation, but one week you're going to take off. And it's just a break from the business. You need to get away from here a little bit. That's exactly what we're finding. What the research is showing with this great resignation is is mental health is people want more of a balance in life. And I don't think that it is anymore going to be work-life balance. You know, you have your work life and your home life. It's really becoming one. It's your life. And how can you best show up? How can you best manage it? And and you can't think as a leader, I'm going to bring my work self, my professional self to the job, but then I'll be my real self when I come home. No, it's really one self. And how can you manage everything? You're absolutely right. You got to take you got to take vacation. And so many leaders think that it is about if I just pay my employees more, they'll they'll be happier. No, it really is about that that balance. And it's hard right now because everything has merged together and people especially who've been working at homes find that they've ne- they never can disconnect. And and taking a vacation is so imperative. This is just a tough time. It's amazing to me how this this virtual schooling has affected families because all of a sudden these kids go to school and the the parents can go to work. Now the kids don't go to school. They stay home. The parents have their whole life disrupted. And so they are adapting to that new realism. And you're right. I don't know where it's going to end up. Uh, It doesn't work if you're a hands-on person that needs to produce Uh, the, you know, uh, Oshness was able to do a lot of telemedicine, which was pretty efficient. But a surgeon can't do telesurgery. He's got to show up in the day with a scalpel and do the surgery. The nurse in the operating room has to be there. The anesthesiologist has to be there. So we learned a lot, but we learned a lot of uh, through frustration that it doesn't work for everything. And we have to figure out how to continue to blend those two lifestyles together. I was trying to hire somebody to come to work for me now. lives in Florida. And I said, you know, you have to relocate. Uh, and I called him to to offer him a permanent position. And he said, you know, I've got a discussion with somebody else who doesn't, I don't have to relocate. Uh, and, and you have to think about that. Now it's the kind of job you have to be here or, or close by here, not in Florida, but I respect that. I respected the fact that that wasn't the easiest thing is to relocate for. Him. So you have to appreciate where people are coming from and not coming from listening. Yes. I mean, it's again, going back to connection, People are are lonely right now, 
And I think they're realizing that, whoa, I don't want to leave where my family are, where my friends are and chase the job and chase the money because that's not going to bring me happiness. That And that's one of the things I dedicated my book to the city of New Orleans, where you don't have to be perfect. And I also realized- And we're not. <laughs> you can't. They encourage you not to be perfect here. Imperfection is the key, right, in New Orleans. But another thing that New Orleans really, what was so appealing to me in my 20s, why I chose the city without any family or friends is because I saw this beautiful community full of real connection. And and that's what I think people are realizing is they want and crave connection, particularly after being disconnected for so long. And so the example you just shared of the person you wanted to hire probably had to think long and hard, huh, do I want to leave and start over and not have a community and connection? That that's I think that's where people are landing. I have a lot of friends who are at their height of their career and they're looking around for chief positions and they don't want to move. And they think that they have the leverage and the power to say, no, we now know you can work remotely in certain professions and I'm not picking up my family and moving. That's again, it's this whole seismic shift that's happening. In my era, my father had to move. Every two years, whenever he got promoted, he had to go to a different market because General Motors didn't believe that you could lead the people you were peers of. So they would transfer you to a different market and different. And and as my father says it, there was no saying no. If you said no, that was the end of your career. You had to keep, you know, moving up and moving. And and I just, that's just not the case anymore. And when you talk about leading your peers, that's ridiculous because your peers need to see uh, people move up the line. It's, you know, the military has that uh, up or out. You either get promoted or you get kicked out. I mean, that's uh, in the officer rank. And that's how they keep the pyramid to keep fewer officers and there's always promotion available. If you don't get promotion, if you're a lieutenant, there's another spot for a lieutenant after you're out. If you do get promoted to a commander, you know, some commander is not there. And and you need to be able to see progress. Uh, as we said in the discussion of the book, you know, we developed this system of a career path where everybody could look at its position and see what his career path was. And he there was a way for him to either get to better in his own classification of work or be promoted into a higher spot. Um, and, and if he chose to do the work that it took to get promoted, he got promoted. Uh, and, the, and the reality of that was the complaints about pay uh, went away, totally went away because they could see a path on how they can get more pay if they choose to do the work to get more pay. I don't mean more physical work. Most of the time it was mental work, learning how to read blueprints or, or some new skill they could add to their portfolio that allowed them to get paid more. It was amazing. It took me two years, but once I got there, all discussion of money went away. And then all those meetings we had with 3,000 employees, almost never a question about how do I get a raise? I just tell you, look at the book, read the career path. If you have any questions about it, I'll be glad to discuss it. But it's right there in writing how you get more money. That's incredible. That's another example, Boise, I forgot about that you were ahead of your time. Because again, what we're learning is people want purpose. It's not just about showing up and doing your job. They want to know, how do I fit into the big picture? How do I progress? It's so much more than just showing up and doing their job. That's incredible. So you had to hire, I guess, a whole lot more people in HR to get 
that career development path? No, we did it as a separate project. We didn't use HR. We did it as a separate project to write down the skill sets for each position. And then what would we like that position to have in addition? So that was a basic set of, you have to pass a test to be a first class welder, but you don't have to read a blueprint. You don't have to use a torch. Now, if you do all of those things, we call that a combination man. You can do both. You get more money. So a guy that's a great welder decides he wants to get more money. He can learn how to do a torch or learn how to read blueprints or some other aspect of his career. I was in, a, I'm a student of Eastern Europe and I loved for the last almost 40 years going to different places in Eastern Europe or former communist countries and picking people's brains about what did you think about number one, if you were free before World War II and then lost your freedom, or if you were born into that system and got it back after 1990, so to speak, what did you feel? What did you think? And and, and only once, and I bet you I talked to two or 300 people over the 30 years, only once one guy said, I wanted to be a lorry driver. And he was driving me around in his van and that was his aspiration. But everybody else had aspirations to do more. And one girl, she was, a, she was translating for me at Harvard on a hunt I was on. And one girl said, when I asked her that question, she was about 27 years old. She said, I always dreamed about driving a car and now I own one. And it was just, it was the, the fact is I had this impossible dream that I would never be able to drive, much less own a car and not own a car. And the fact that you can have career wishes, and yet there are some people who said, no, this is where I want to be. I don't want to put out any more effort than it takes to me to be a first class, whatever I am. And they're satisfied. They don't want to be a manager. They don't want to be a supervisor. Uh, there's a lot of responsibility that comes with all those positions. And not everybody, as you know, in leadership training, not everybody's a leader. You need followers for leaders. <laughs> you have to have followers. That is exactly right. And you know, you talk about something. I, I didn't know that about you in Eastern Europe. That's fascinating. I would love to have that data that you've collected. And and I just did this lecture yesterday with my students on self-actualization. You know, we're all trying to self-actualize, right? And Maslow's hierarchy of needs said in order to get to that pinnacle of self-actualization, first you have to have food and water, then you have to have a roof over your head, then you have to be safe and group belonging, and then and only then can you reach this law pinnacle. And then Walter Lieberman came in out of UCLA and did some brain research with MRI. He runs the Neuroscience Center. And he figured out that you can never be self-actualized unless you have connection, true connection, connection to, like you were saying, to the organization, connection to a bigger purpose. You got to have connection or else nothing else matters. As a matter of fact, it's really interesting, Boise. In his study, he put one set of subjects through an MRI machine with a, a broken bone, some sort of broken bone on their body. So they were in physical pain and he wanted to see how their brains lit up. And then the other set of subjects went through the MRI machines feeling social rejection, social pain, disconnection. And so he wanted to know what was more painful. And he found out the most pain is that social disconnection. So if you think about it, on the world stage, we're all coming out of a pandemic where we felt very disconnected. So no wonder we're craving so much more. And no wonder companies are, are struggling trying to 
you know, hire employees, keep employees, because we've now experienced what it feels like to be disconnected. And you can't self-actualize and be everything you want to be without that. I find this fascinating. Can you tell? <laughs> I'm a little obsessed. It's true, though. It's human nature. It's so true. Oh, I love this. Do you want to say anything else or any of your brilliant stories, Boise, for our listeners on connection or listening or what you've learned about leadership? Why don't we end with that? Kind of- <laughs> yeah, I think I was reading something and it was it just reminded me of a, a, a statement I really believe in, and that I think my employees needed to respect me. They didn't need to like me. So I never was trying to be their friend but I always want to be their listener and know that I would respect their opinion. And so uh, it's not a, uh, it's not a fraternity where you want to have all these equal peers where everybody likes you, but you want to, as a leader, be somebody that everybody respects because you generally have thought out the process. You have listened to the input and then you make a decision. And if you're going to remain the leader, obviously most of those decisions need to be correct. Uh, not all of them have to be right, but most of them do. And admitting the faults when, when you're wrong, uh, is just as important. But I think learning the fact that you, as a leader, you need to have respect of the people you're leading much more so than the love of the people you're leading. And that's, I think, uh, a, a lesson that you learn along the way by listening. Oh, I love that. You are absolutely right. And something you said, and I'll close it out with this earlier in one of your stories, Boise, you talked about the heart. It was the first time you kind of connected the heart through listening to the people. And and now in 2022, Hubert Jolie just wrote an incredible book called The Heart of Business. He was the CEO of Best Buy and turned around Best Buy when everybody said they were going to go bankrupt because he went back and, and just listened and realized that it's all about purpose and it's all about the employees. That's how you turn around a company, right? And he named his book, titled it The Heart of Business. And so I feel like we are we are in this era now that that we're all realizing, whoa, what we thought about what was going to make the most money or, or how to achieve success might not be true. It really is about the heart. It's about the soft skills. It's about connection and listening. And I just can't thank you enough to spend spending your precious time with us today, Boise. Thank you for joining us on The Seismic Shift. And before you go, can I ask one favor of you? Do you mind sharing today's episode with a leader you know? The power of this conversation is found in your using it and sharing it to create real connection in your life. Lastly, I'd like to thank Loyola University, New Orleans and the Terra Firma audio team for helping bring this content to life.